You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. Hello, Father Jeffrey. How are you? Good evening. I'm well. How about you? I'm doing well. And welcome to all our viewers, whether you're watching live right now or watching later. It's lovely to have you. Father Jeffrey, our entire premise here at Enacting the Kingdom is that you are my teacher and that I ask you a bunch of questions. But if I dare say, you know, if not, if, this, uh, evening. <laughs> not this evening, there is one other person in my life who is uh, who I regularly regularly interact with, who's also one of my professors uh, and who I learned a lot from. And we're going to have him on today, Dr. Daniel Opperwall. But before I bring him on, I just want to butter him up a little bit and read a, a little bit of his bio here. So this is from his website, Dr. Daniel G. Opperwall is an Orthodox Christian author, scholar, teacher father and husband. He lives and writes in Hamilton, Ontario. With a broad spectrum of tastes and interests, Dr. Opperwall's work ranges from academic studies in church history and patristics, in which he holds his PhD, to critical essays, sci-fi and fantasy, literary fiction, poetry, and children's books. You might know him from his popular books, We Pray, which is a, which is a children's poetry book about Orthodox prayer, as well as his book, A Layman in the Desert, Monastic Wisdom for a Life in the world. Please welcome Dr. Daniel Opperwall. Welcome, Dan. Hi, nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. I, I alluded to the fact to Father Jeffrey that, um, I mean, you and I, Dan, have had, you know, possibly one of the weirdest relationships in, uh, in recorded history. Yep. <laughs> uh, because I started at the University of Toronto uh, in, in one of your classes, was one of the first classes I took in my first semester. And I was just Yuri at that time, right? Just one of your students. But here I am, uh, a priest, and uh, we're still hanging out together. Yeah, my parish priest and my confessor now. That's how. That's where we really ratcheted it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in my final semester, you were marking... I was, I think, already at that time, I was your parish priest, but also a student. And you were marking my papers in divinity school to evaluate whether or not I could really be a good... <laughs> parish priest. So it's an interesting, uh, interesting relationship. Um, well, today's topic is abusing the fathers when using the fathers goes wrong. And the, uh, and, and it's a fascinating topic because I mean, so many Orthodox, uh, the, the fathers of the church play a central uh, role in the way that we um, think about being Orthodox in our Orthodox theology. So I guess, I mean, I'll go to you first, Dr. Opperwall. What in kind of the most general senses, what do Orthodox people, when they drop the word a father of the church or the fathers, kind of on a popular level, what do you think people are imagining that these people are? Like, how are they using this word? That's, it's really it's such a good question. I don't think there's a, 
an absolute answer to it. Uh, sometimes it's it's just kind of whatever ancient authorities a person happens to think is on their side in a debate or a discussion or something. Um, I, broadly speaking, it tends to be this kind of loose canon of highly influential, very, very important early Christian authors through roughly the 8th century. It seems like we don't really have fathers, too many fathers anymore after the 8th century, but it's maybe still a few. Maybe the Simeon, the new theologian, is still a church father. Um, but yeah, it's it's an amorphous it's an amorphous concept that often means what what people want it to mean. But one thing that I think is is pretty pretty close to universal in the Orthodox Church is that the fathers, whoever exactly that is, have this um, tremendous weight, tremendous weight of authority, and that their their way of approaching theology and Christian life is um, it's just deeply significant. It has to be taken very very seriously. It's sort of a force to be reckoned with. That's um, so, and who who gets populated in that category maybe varies depending a little bit on who you're asking, but uh, it's it's that group that is kind of foundational theologically. Right, right. Uh, Father Jeffrey, do you want to add anything there? I think one of the interesting things um, when you press this a little bit is that some of the most influential figures from that period aren't necessarily the ones who line up very neatly, you know, within the Orthodox faith or, you know, Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, you know, and and it's funny because the fathers themselves in the wider category almost acknowledge this amongst themselves, mm. but we haven't really carried that through to kind of contemporary Orthodox perceptions of it. You know, the, 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 today the Orthodox who's really hung up on the fathers and, and really emphasizing that wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, in, in the influence someone like Origen had, you know, across the whole patristic corpus, you know, they might be a little bit alarmed because, of course, on the other hand, he's condemned by an ecumenical council, and you know, probably unfairly. But uh, it, or you know, I, there's a figure that I really um, you know like in, who debated with Augustine or influenced Augustine a little bit. But he was a, a Donatist called Tychonius of Carthage, a really big figure in terms of uh, patristic, um, you know, biblical interpretation and the kind of whole methodology for that. And Augustine actually takes an awful lot on from him and then passes that on, you know, to others. But, you know, strictly speaking, being a Donatist, you know, he had Orthodox faith, but, you know, in terms of praxis and so forth, wouldn't have lined up neatly, you know, with the boundaries of the church that, that we would understand it. And so, indeed, a very amorphous category. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of investigation to see that it's a little bit more nuanced and ambiguous than a lot of Orthodox might like to think when they think that we are the Church of the Fathers therefore straight-laced orthodox you know the boundaries are clear you know if only we were patristic then all things would be put right but actually to be more patristic is to be maybe a little bit more loose in terms of the boundaries and and the categories that that we have but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah i think i mean what you're putting down there father jeffrey i think is something that i i mean i've perceived in my growing up in the orthodox church in that there is this sort of there is this sort of looseness to what makes a father a father, right? Because you have these radically different figures. You have somebody like Photius the Great, who is a, a, um, a archbishop in Constantinople and things like that. You have the uh, Cappadocian fathers who are very learned and all that. But you also have people like um, 
Anthony the Great, who was the kind of a, a monk that was silent. He didn't even really write anything. It was the account of him by Athanasius that we know anything about him. And, and his writings are sort of considered, or his, the accounts of his life are considered sort of authoritative in that, in that patristic sense. So I guess, Dan, what, I mean, are there any particular aspects of church fatherhood that you would say kind of really, really do matter for us Orthodox that really kind of that should be essential in, in kind trying to uh, sketch out what a church father is? Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, that's a, a good question. But yeah, so to answer that, I think I would observe that there are kind of two broad categories of church fathers um, that are often sort of mashed together, but can, it can be helpful to, to actually pull apart. You have the church fathers who were uh, essential within some kind of theological conversation or theological debate, say the theological church fathers, and you have the ascetic church fathers. And you mentioned Anthony the Great being being one of these uh, and, and many others. John Cassian, who I do a lot of work on. Um, there's Evagrius. There's, that's another you know liminal figure as Evagrius, a church father or not. He's not a saint, but he's enormously influential in the Orthodox spiritual um, system, you might say, all the way to the present day. Um, so theological fathers and ascetical fathers, and I think that they kind of become church fathers for different reasons, depending on which which of those groups they're in. And there's overlap too. It's not like this is a bright line. You know, St. Basil, for example, writes a lot about ascetical concerns and spiritual concerns, but also a lot about theology. So it's not an absolutely bright line, but there's these two kind of broad streams. And the reason we start thinking of people, uh, of authors as church fathers is different depending on which, which stream they fall into. In the ascetic stream, uh, it really, I think it just tends to be authors whose legacy in terms of shaping how spiritual life is carried out by Orthodox Christians, monks, nuns, as well as uh, lay people. Uh, it's, it's those authors who were just kind of critical, seminal, essential in shaping the way we do things today. Uh, so if you read a, a St. John Cassian, you're going to see so much in there that's as an Orthodox, feels very familiar, you know, very, um, very recognizable. It's had a huge influence all the way to the present day on on who we are and how we practice our faith. So, the ascetical fathers, they they may say almost nothing. They may say literally nothing at all about theology at all. I mean, um, Cassian writes a little bit about Nestorianism, but uh, a lot of them, it's nothing. You read the sayings of the Desert Fathers, there's going to be like zero um, theological information in there, debates about the Trinity or whatever, the Incarnation, this kind of thing. Instead, it's just talking about the lived life of faith. And so they become church fathers really because of that influence and because of that really broad agreement, I think, throughout the ages of history that the, these are uh, authorities worth reading, uh, who you can kind of take in. You can kind of absorb this stuff without having to be kind of too much on the defensive, frankly. Um, you're sort of safe. You're sort of safe with these authors. And there's some other authors that you can read that maybe uh, maybe it's not quite as safe. So maybe in Evagrius, you know, you might run into stuff if you get into his theology and, and some of the originist tendencies in there that perhaps you need to take with more of a grain of salt. So you can read that. It's not like we tell people they're banned from reading that, but, um, but it might be a little dicier in certain sections. So the fathers are that kind of the safest spot and the ones that we sort of, we, we turn to um, as definitive in the aesthetic side. And the theological side, in a lot of ways, it's very similar, but these tend to be, um, they tend to be authors who were really crucial in articulating the orthodox position uh, in some kind of 
major theological controversy by and large. That's that's who we see. So it's your St. Athanasius, it's your St. Gregory the theologian, it's your Maximus the confessor. Uh, these are the kind of the ones who most fully articulated the Orthodox theology in something like the Nicene debates or the Monothelite controversy, that sort of thing. And so again, it's theologically the kind of safe place. Um, mostly. But the thing is, even within those groups, um, and even within those who people we would all call church fathers that are uncontroversially sort of church fathers, uh, there's always little bits and pieces. I mean, they're not infallible. They're not oracles. Um, you know, some of the things that St. Gregory of Nyssa, this wonderful, amazing philosophical saint, has to say are condemned by a church council later on. Um, and and in, this, in the ascetic fathers, too, you know, there might be some things where maybe they've <laughs> there might be some things that you need to take with a grain of salt even within that group mm-hmm. so it's it's a spectrum and it's these it's like how far away are you before you stop being a church father from this like stuff that we kind of all agree on this shaping stuff either theological or ascetic that's where there's no bright line it can be very very hard to tell but there's also a point it, there also the spectrum also does matter it's not like it's nothing so if you read you know saint athanasius if you read um saint maximus the confessor as an orthodox you're going to find far less in there that you need to like sort of keep some distance from then you will in origin for example if you read origin you're going to find the roots the roots of orthodox trinitarian theology right origin it's it's all from origin but you are also going to find some absolutely out there stuff about souls being reincarnated and pre-existing and like all of us falling except and it gets really wild and it's not part of the orthodox theological conversation so origin someone you can read and he's hugely influential but he's also like is a lot trickier um but if you go over to athanasius there's going to be very little in there that you have to think um boy this is a problem or it's just straight up not even orthodox so yeah where are they on that continuum and right yeah i think that's how it goes well, I'd like to, we're already uh, about 15 minutes in. I'd like to shift to actual, the topic of abusing the fathers now that we've sort of laid that out uh, a little bit. Um, kind of the elephant in the room for us Orthodox that interact online are things like message boards and Facebook groups and things like that. Um, you know, I, this is in my Facebook days, which were a while ago now, thankfully. Um, but, you know, seeing things like, you know, if you're Orthodox, you have to believe this. And here's a quote from a church father. And, or, or here's, uh, here I've listed, uh, 25 quotes from 25 different church fathers over the course of 10 centuries. You know, that clear, that means clearly this is part of our Orthodox tradition and you kind of have to follow this. And in, you know, I've, I've never really been able to sort of really figure out how to succinctly counter kind of that way of, I'm thinking, or like maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm the one in the wrong, right? Um, it seems to me a bit proof texty that, oh, well, this person said that. Therefore you have to kind of behave this way or, or believe this, uh, thing. And yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that tendency to just list off quotes. It's almost as if, you know, some groups of Christians will just drop a Bible quote yeah. and say, well, the Bible says, very, very similar. yes, right. Very. Well, the, the father say, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's. It, it, I, I sort of anticipate that you'd ask this question. Um, maybe the first thing I'll say is that it's not necessarily the worst start. I mean, if if you're involved in some kind of theological debate or conversation, um, to start with, you know, a list of quotations to start looking through and see what well what is the church's witness as a whole. But it's definitely is definitely not the finish line. It's a very ironically a very unpatristic thing to say. That that's how we decide, you know, what what's true. I think 
um, I think if you look, especially at, at the early church fathers, you know, just take the fathers of the fourth century debating about Nicaea and some related issues, you don't see that kind of thing in them really at all. And in fact, where you get a lot of proof texting um, in the fourth century, early fifth century is from all of the people we would now call heretics. That's where you get lots of proof texts. And the Arians have all kinds of proof texts from scripture by and large. But, you know, this proves that they're right. And what you see in the church fathers is actually a very different move, which is to say, sure, sure. Like you have those quotations, you have your list. But the point is uh, of reading scripture, for example, is to look for the whole witness, the whole thing together. What does it all say? Not just this one line of it. We have this, you know, this fat stack of scriptures from the Old Testament all the way to the New. What is the total witness of that? You know, what does the whole New Testament tell us about who Christ is, uh, for example? So the fathers themselves ran into very, very similar problems where, you know, I have a list of texts and they're saying, yeah, yeah, but. That's not, you got to read all the other texts too. You've got to contextualize those texts. You've got to read the texts that might appear to contradict them and try to understand how that tension is resolved. Um, and they do some things, uh, they, they, they get into some creative kind of uh, thinking and talking. Um, and, and Nicaea is famous. One of the big debates at Nicaea was, can you call the, the, the son homoousius of one essence with the father? And of course, as Orthodox we say, of one essence with the father. But that word is not in scripture. And the Arians were in there pointing out left, right, and center. That's not in the Bible. You can't use that word. And the church fathers say, well, we know, they know it's not in the Bible. They're pretending it's really there. But they're, they'll counter, yeah, but if you read the whole thing, if you read the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, and you understand what's being said about who Christ is, this is what it means. This is the thrust of it. So we can use a word like homoousius. We can use a word like Trinity, also not in the Bible anywhere. Um, I think a very similar thing uh, is how the fathers read each other. The witness of the tradition is authoritative as Orthodox Christians. It, it is. But how do we understand what the witness of that tradition is? It's more than just assembling a catena, a floor legium, as they would call it in the medieval world of church fathers, and just say, well, I have a thousand quotes and you've only got 995. So I win. So that the tradition is what, I, is, is, is what I'm saying, right? That's not how it works. You need to interrogate all those texts, look at them. The church fathers, especially in the medieval period, I find it really interesting. They do a lot of very simple text critical things. Like when and they're debating uh, about uh, certain key theological issues. Like, well, is that text even real? You know, you say this is a text from whoever, um, but is it really? Uh, so there, there's one, this is a very simple thing to start with. Like, is this text authentic? Is it really by who they, who it's said it's by? So we got to answer that question. You know, what's the reception history of the, of the um, uh, manuscripts and all this sort of thing at this really basic level. Well, now you've got to think, okay, well, if it's legitimate, let, now you have to read the whole document. We can't just pull out quotations. We have to read the whole thing. What is this author saying overall? What is the thrust of what they're doing? Is this quote being taken out of context or is it indeed very emblematic of exactly what they think? That's That can be a complicated question to answer. There's a lot that goes mm -hmm. into that. And then you've got to read it next to all the other ones. You know, This is so much work. It's a ton of work. <laughs> It's a ton of work. And it would, it, wouldn't, it would be really easy if we could just assemble. And I, I have a thousand quotes and you have 995, so I win. Um, but uh, that would be very unpatristic. That's not how the fathers themselves approach the theological problems. The issue is what's true is true. What the tradition overall says is what's authoritative. And understanding what the church fathers are saying is an important piece of that. But there's all of this extra stuff that goes on. And the church fathers were masters of doing that themselves, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Father Jeffrey, I'll open it up to you if there's anything you want to add. 
I mean, I, I think, you know, what's being said is, is spot on here. I mean, the, I love the idea of the starting point, you know, I think in your answer to whoever says, you know, but I've got a meme, you know, with a quote and, you know, and it's got a pretty icon. And so therefore it's all the more authoritative and look, it's gone viral. So, you know, that proves everything these days. Uh, but the, that it's the starting point that, it, you know, it's not that we dismiss that out of hand or that we, you know, just walk away from it, but we say, okay, you know, now let's, let's look at that text. I mean, half the things that circulate on the internet have no uh, reference whatsoever. Right. Um, I, I, am, I don't know if Professor Opera is the same, but students are forever emailing me quotes that they've come across on the internet and asking me, where does this come from? as though I, I've memorized <laughs> the entire corpus of St. John Chrysostom or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> and, and some of them come across a little bit like those things, you know, where there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln saying, you know, he's given up Facebook and things like that. You know, like they're clearly out of context. They couldn't possibly have been, you know, from the person or from the, the period, you know, that they're, they're written. So there's that first job anyway, to kind of interrogate the thing. But even if you can find it, I mean, this whole context thing is really crucial. You know, I, I want people to think, again, coming back to your point about if somebody presents you with this, what, what might you say? Well, imagine you had to go through your entire life, every single word that came out of your mouth and every thing you ever wrote, you had to assume that someone is going to take just on its own, out of context, and make out of that your whole view of the whole world, right? It would really complicate talking about, you know, household chores or raising children or or whatever else, because we have to understand that all these things were written in a particular, usually pastoral context, right? A lot of these men were bishops, uh, or these presbyters, or teachers, they were leaders, they were responding to real historical circumstances and struggles and issues, and they mightn't even put it quite the way that they did if it had been different circumstances at play. I mean, one of the, the things that happens particularly, and there's some very standout church fathers in this uh, vein. But if the particular pressures that someone's under are in one particular direction, then they end up kind of skewing their whole corpus in that direction. And I think a really classic case of this is St. Augustine, who himself probably wasn't Augustinian, <laughs> you know, but not in the, not in the sense that you know, that that would take on. And a lot of Orthodox would lay at his doorstep, a lot of you know, exaggerations in terms of, you know, uh, depravity or grace uh, and, and, and that sort of thing. But he was dealing with very particular things, both in his own yeah. upbringing and, and, and personal life experience, but also the pastoral context of North Africa, you know, in his day. And he had to respond to that. And if he'd been in a different time or place, he wouldn't have written that. He would have focused on something completely different. And he had a brilliant mind. He was a true Christian pastor. He believed the gospel. I have every conviction he was a saint, you know, of the Orthodox Catholic Church. But, you know, are there things that I don't like in terms of the way he's exaggerated certain things? It's entirely down to the context in which he was writing. So I have to take that entirely into to consideration when I read him, you know. And other people would be distorted in other ways that we're maybe even not aware of because... It didn't come down to us in quite the way that you know, his particular history has been told so well and by himself, uh, almost uncharacteristically so of his era. But other church fathers probably had the same thing, you know, and they mightn't have been emphasizing certain things quite as much had they not been given that question, which is another big thing. Right. Church fathers are mostly interested in answering 
the, the issues of their day. They're not going to some ivory tower and, you know, usually, and just sort of in an abstract way coming up with new theological concepts. They're having to respond to you know, the exigent issues of the church in, in their day. And so we need to pay attention to that to the extent that we can know it and therefore, you know, put them back into a, a kind of historical context that then we can then interrogate in relation to the questions we have because we're there different, right? We have different questions today. And so the idea that the the patristic meme with the quote from the fourth or the fifth or the sixth century can be relevant to questions in the 21st century, I mean, you can get there, I think, but there is a long process of, of checking, interrogating, learning, bouncing, you know, ideas off. And then as has been said, you know, setting this in the greater context of the whole of the gospel, which we have to be convinced that as Christians, they they believed in its entirety. So if there's gaps in their corpus, it wasn't that they didn't believe it. You know, if somebody doesn't refer to the Trinity, it's not that they weren't Trinitarian. It's that that wasn't being asked of them in, in their time and they mm -hmm. were focusing on something else. So I think that putting into context, putting back into that wider, you know, narrative and story and theology of the whole church and tradition makes you know the best sense. And so, yeah, start with the list, start with the meme or whatever, but go go somewhere a little bit more interesting and productive in the end. So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, Father Jeffrey, it's um it sounds almost as if like there's no such thing as a father doing cold clinical theology in a lab. Right? I, yeah, there, there's I thought the example you were going to go with Father Jeffrey and uh, St. Augustine is a great one, too. But I thought you were going to go with, with Palamas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's another one. Yeah, it, it, we, there's a whole issue in Palamas studies among scholars of Palamas where we have some of his late texts have been subsequently edited and and his earlier versions seem to be a little too sharp about certain things and like almost like problematic and then we have these softer texts there's a big debate who did the editing is it an editor from later who went in and, and kind of cleaned up palamas and it, which is a possibility but there's also a going school thought which i think is a kind of consensus or dominant and palamas did it himself because yeah. in the heat of theological battle <laughs> with the Kindanos and all this heavy politics, I mean, this is an intense time. You know, he's overstating some things. Himself realizes later, um, you know, maybe it's not quite what I meant and comes back and actually edits it and softens up his own text, which is an, a, an entirely understandable thing to do. I mean, any yeah. human, I think, can can understand how, how that can occur. I've said things that I subsequently, I've declared boldface heresy in a classroom by mistake. At least once. I've caught you doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's just a pure error, but that's another, that's another example. You know, we're happens. all human and they're human too. Yeah. And so it's always a conversation, even with themselves. And especially yeah. when the stakes are really high and the emotions are intense. Um, so, and so you want to know, well, what does Palamas think about something? That's already, now you just opened a can of worms. Well, which edition? And now we need to know, did he make his own edits or, or are we cleaning up Palamas? And in fact, he was kind of a borderline heretic about certain things. And those are hard questions when you're talking about humans who have opinions that move around and are always in a conversation in a context. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's the danger of doing podcasting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's right. One, you know, or or preaching without a text on on a yeah. Sunday morning. Uh, but but that is actually where you know some of this interesting investigation you know can go. It doesn't have to mean you know in terms of pressing these people to kind of push a bit further or learn a little bit more. It doesn't mean you have to go and necessarily get a PhD you know in patristics uh, to do this. But just read a little bit more widely in someone's work. So, so take Saint Gregory Palamas. I mean the. 
we have not only, you know, kind of theological, you know, writings where they're in this kind of polemical vein and, and so forth, but we have him operating in other contexts as well. We have collections of sermons, you know, that he gave. Um, which again have a particular context and you know set of considerations and, and he's got a motive and an agenda there but he certainly does not press some of those you know earlier polemical you know theological points in quite the same way but he deals with the same subject or that comes up in the context of commenting on the gospels or feasts and that sort of thing. And you get a, a different perspective, a different angle, uh, a different vector really on, on, on his thought through that, which is really, you know, quite interesting. So it, the exploration, you know, doesn't have to be go and, you know, become a high level scholar, but just read more widely, keep reading, find things in context find, and, and read other people at the period to know what, how they were using the same terms, which is, Another interesting, you know, thing is this, to assume that our use of words, particularly in translation, which is another problematic here, but, you know, is the same as what they were meaning when they use those words is a big leap, you know, and the only way you can begin to kind of see whether that works or not is to read more texts from the same period, uh, from the similar kinds of contexts and so forth. And so it, it's a it's a rather fun exploration. It, it doesn't have to push you to the high level of academia. It, it can just mean go read more Church Fathers, which is never a bad thing, right? Well, we have a question related to that. So that worked just perfectly, Father Jeffrey. From Alyssa, for those of us who aren't able to read all of the many texts from the Church Fathers with discernment, is there a beginner's guide to the fathers that you could recommend? Well, I think A Layman in the Desert by Dr. Daniel Opperwall. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a particular, I'd, maybe not bad in some ways, but that's, that's dealing with the legacy of the ascetic fathers. As I said, we have these kind of two, two streams. I, I, my sense is that in the wild world of the internet, which I don't actually spend a lot of time in, I'm not on most social media or anything like that. So these memes that Father Jeffrey's talking about this, they usually don't come my way. I just stay away from it all. Um, but uh, in in that world, which I'm aware of, at least, uh, I feel like the ascetic fathers are, are less often, you know, abused, if you will, uh, through these types of techniques, uh, which is which is maybe a good thing. And in, in some senses, um, that does make them perhaps a really helpful introduction. Uh, like Father Jeffrey was alluding to earlier, Often in a course, uh, or if someone asks me for reading recommendations or whatever, um, and let's say they're interested in a, in a Palamas or they're interested in what a Photius or somebody, um, I will very often first encourage them to look at more of the pastoral stuff or the ascetical stuff. Uh, if you're not a, if you're not interested, you don't have to be in this world as an Orthodox Christian. There's no reason you need to be a high-level scholar, you know, who's studied enough Aristotle to understand what's going on when people are debating about whether there's two natures in Christ. That's that's hard. It takes more than a decade, probably, of training and intense familiarity with uh, with Greek philosophy and terminology. And even then, there's debates among scholars about what this all means. So that's extremely, extremely difficult. So if you're really interested in that, that's great. You know, I've sort of made a of that father jeffrey has too that's lovely but if you're kind of a more less strange than us <laughs> and you want to get get straight down to living a, a better a more holy life then maybe the, the place to start is often actually just get to the sermons from those same authors get to the ascetical texts from those same authors maybe don't dive into basil's on the holy spirit where all these you know arguments about the exact words of scripture uh you know maybe maybe look at his uh, his ethical discussions because it's the same it's the same thing ultimately for these church fathers the way life is lived 
And all these theological ideas are one and the same. That's why the theological ideas are important. And so if you don't want to like get into the really hard work of understanding the heavy highfalutin theology, look at what they were telling the people in their congregations or in their communities about how to be Christian, because that's, that is actually the embodiment of the theology right there. And maybe that's kind of all you need. Um, so yeah, I mean, my book is not, is not the worst thing, I suppose. Um, but even the Church of Fathers themselves, the popular patristic series is really, is really lovely. But looking especially for those, um, more pastoral, more, um, lived life type of texts. And they wrote a ton of them. And those, those can be a really good introduction. Mm. So I, I mentioned earlier, well, Father Jeffrey, you were talking a lot about the pastoral nature of the theology. And, and I think often nowadays when we think of, let's say, experts in their field, there's this expectation of objectivity, right? If we think kind of scientifically, ration, rationalistically, that even when you go into... I, I did a religion and culture undergraduate degree, and none of the professors would ever tell you what faith or not faith they were a part of or they had because the idea was well we need to actually approach this objectively kind of in a clinical setting and little you know little did they know that they're coming at it with just as much faith or not faith as they would if they had said what faith they were um so i mean what you were talking about there Dan, and what you were talking earlier, Father Jeffrey, was the fact that even some of the highest theology of the fathers was not done in this sort of um, ivory tower, like, um, we are going to bring theology, our God, under the microscope and just, like, figure this out, divorced from everyday life. That, that you know, the only kind of theology that exists is almost pastoral theology. And I'm wondering if we could get a bit more commentary uh, on that before we move on to another topic. Yeah, it's, I, I feel like for most of the great church fathers, they only really get into that really precise, you know, the, the how many natures that this kind of debate with, when they feel like they just absolutely have to, you know, their backs are completely against the wall. I think Maximus the Confessor is a great example of that. Started his career, beautiful tech, the centuries on love, which would be a really good one as a first introduction to patristic thought. Just sit with it, read it, meditate it. Don't even try to like plot it out or understand it. Just, just saturate yourself in it, steep yourself in it. This is his early work, and it's only much later in his life when controversy starts erupting that he is basically, by his own account, really forced into trying to defend the orthodox position against uh, a, a disastrous position. I mean, uh, monothelitism is, is disastrous theologically, and it's disastrous for the Christian life. Maximus saw that, and so he's, he wasn't just going to stand there and let you know, let falsehood prevail. And so when forced to it, sure. And he would get down and he had all of the theological acumen, all of the philosophical acumen to fight those battles. But uh, that was not what he set out to do. He set out to be a faithful monk, helping other monks, other monastics, other nuns, and even lay people to grow closer to Christ. That was the real purpose. And only when that call uh, ran up against some people teaching some, some really problematically, very problematically false things, does he pull out the, you know, real, the theological 
battle. Um, so they, it's not it's not where they want to be. Uh, they'll they'll do it when they have to, but uh, it's it's really not. I think that's I think that's close to universal in the fathers. I see very few of them who who you get the impression that they're just like it, just trying to split hairs for the sake of it, or stir up stuff for the sake of it, or just um, they would just much rather be praying. <laughs> Uh, but if you're if you're going to start saying you know there's there's one will in Christ, then okay. I mean, they'll do what they got to do, but it's not what they're choosing. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting uh, corollary to that, which is you know then what should we do, right? Uh, in terms of what should we do with the, the church fathers, and would it not be the best way of honoring them to nearly set aside or or just you know, treasure, but, you know, not use on a regular basis, all those things that were only brought out under extreme duress where they had to. And, and the fact is where we don't face those pressures today, theologically, we face other ones, you know, or where, you know, what they have written has, you know, been carefully kind of, uh, you know, spread through our liturgical tradition and we have enough, you know, walls and defenses around, you know, all the things that they defended. So to, to go and kind of steep ourselves precisely in those texts would be what they don't want us to do, I would have thought. You know, they would probably prefer us to get back to that default position of wanting to pray and live the Christian life in its fullest. And if we can do that, if they've built the right walls and and so that we're theologically protected within the church by the liturgical tradition, by the canonical tradition, by by the teaching that has come down to us. And, you know, we have access to all of that more than any other period in, in church history, right? We, you can own a lot of books about the Orthodox Church. So having all of that is not the point, right? Just to focus on that, to focus on, you know, arcane theological points or debating, you know, this, that, and the other thing, which is where I see an awful lot of effort going, right? With people, particularly neophytes or, you know, new converts to orthodoxy, they want to, they want to relish in every dogmatic nuance and point and so forth from the, the church fathers. And I think the church fathers are probably sitting there shaking their heads and saying, don't be silly. The only reason we did this was to free you up so that you could pray so that you could give alms, so that you could love, so that you could become saints, you know? And, you know, why why would we waste all that effort of theirs by just focusing on that effort of theirs, if that makes sense? So we yeah. we almost need to honor them to the fullest degree by allowing what they did to become our inheritance. In other words, we are free now and, and largely, you know, without the kind of pressures that they face, to be able to do precisely what Christians are meant to be doing, to follow the gospel, to be true, you know, proclaimers of the kingdom of God. They would love the position that we have had, that we have today. And, and yet we're, we're squandering it nearly by becoming, you know, kind of absolute experts in every detail of what they were doing, which was a kind of warlike effort, right? You know, it's a little bit like, you know, the, the people who have gone to war have achieved peace. Now they want us to enjoy the peace. And yet all we're doing is focusing on military hardware. And so it's like, hang on a minute. What was the point? Yeah. I mean, autobiographically, if I can throw that in there, this, this has been very, very much my arc as a reader, as a scholar, uh, I wrote my PhD thesis uh, almost 10 years ago now on uh, Gregory the Theologian's pneumatology and all about 
um, you know, this one particular aspect of high Trinitarian theology in the context of a, of a heated debate and going, you know, going through and trying to parse out exactly what's going on here, both historically and theologically. Uh, and like, it, that's important. We have to keep that around because if you two fathers start, you know, preaching the Matamachianism, uh, I, I'm going to be there being like, no, <laughs> here's why. And it's, it's, it's Gregory Nazianza says, but well, but you're not. And so in, in terms of the arc of certainly my own interests, um, I, I have to say it wasn't terribly long before I just having read enough of that stuff and gotten the picture of it and gotten what the theological stakes of are, are of all these uh, key debates. It's sort of like, a, I mean, I just ran out of interest <laughs> to be honest because, okay, well, there you go. I mean, they're right. I, the seven ecumenical councils, I'm with every one of them on these issues that they, that they weigh in on. I think they're right. And I can tell you why probably more than many people can, but um, I'm going to spend my whole career just reading that stuff because exactly what Father Jeffrey just said, that's, this is all, this is defending a space. This is carving out a, a, an area for us where we're supposed to go in and be Christian. And so I've gravitated more and more and more. And in, in the book you've mentioned now, Father Yuri uh, is, is exactly, you know, a step in that direction to say, okay, well, we've got this figured out. We know what's going on there, but, and we should, but um, now let's think about how to be. How to be Christian mm-hmm. in much more mundane ways. Now, let me think about, you know, uh, what I, my life around the house, mm-hmm. my life in the world, my life in in my job with my friends at my parish, um, because that's where theology actually lives. So we got about five minutes left uh, in the public half of this uh, live stream. If you are not a patron and you'd like to see the next 45 minutes where I'm going to be asking questions about origin of Alexandria and uh, some other particular church fathers, um, maybe to stir up some controversy. There's nothing like the origin (laughs) of Alexandria to stir up some controversy. and so, yeah, you can head on over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and pick any tier of support and you'll get access immediately to the live stream, which will start at eight o'clock. So we've got about five minutes for the public and then at eight, we'll take a 15 minute break and then at eight o'clock we'll do, uh, we'll begin our private live stream. Uh, but to end the public live stream, I want to give you a phrase. And the question is, what does this make you, how do you react to this? How does this make you feel? <laughs> Okay, here we go. Well, the fathers say... Which ones? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I always want to know. Honestly, that's my instinctive knee-jerk reaction to that. Who? Just tell me who, so that we can start having that conversation that we've just been talking about here. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong. Who, wh- who are you talking about? Because you're... You, <laughs> Well, hey, if you if you don't know who you're talking about, um, then we need well, we need to find out. Maybe we should have to do that together. But we need to dig down. Like, where did you get this? You got this information somewhere. You got this belief somewhere that the fathers say whatever. Um, so let's let's track that down, and then let's see where it really came from, and then let's look at the context of that. Uh, you may be absolutely right that there's extremely broad agreement among lots and lots of early Christian authors about whatever about whatever you're about to say to me. Um, you, you might be completely wrong. It's hard to know, but we first, we need to get down to who I, I personally, whenever I possibly can, I do not use that phrase. I will, if, if at all possible, I will say, um, who I'm talking about, you know, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, this is what he has to say about that. And I don't do that to say, and so there, that's final. 
Uh, and you let to say, because, well, that's, well, this is the case. So, so he's had this to say about some particular issue. And now we have that piece of information. Now he's in the conversation. It doesn't mean the conversation's over. Um, but it's much easier to continue having that conversation when we can then say, okay, well, does he mean what you're saying he means? Now we can go back and look at the text together, maybe. Um, and we can think through what he's after, what he's trying to say. So the more specific we have it, the better. If you just say the father say X, we really can't, we can't do any of that work. Contextualizing the fathers is not possible. We have to get down to specific authors and specific texts, even if it's a bunch of them. Maybe it's like, you know, 10 different ones and they're all talking about a similar theme. That's fine too. But we got to figure out who they are and start to start doing all that hard leg work, at least in small ways. Um, I, Father Jeffrey, I'm going to let you respond. Uh, okay, you respond, Father Jeffrey. I was going to ask yeah, another question, but we're running out of time here. So Very quickly. I mean, I, I completely agree with all of that. I mean, it is not an impossible beginning to a phrase. I mean, there are ways in which that sentence has been used. I think if you roll back the tape on the last 45 minutes, we've each used it a little bit, um, something like that. Because, I mean, you have to be able to say something like, well, you know, the fathers don't really ever talk about aerospace industry. You know, that's a meaningful sentence and it's quite true, you know, Uh, and and there are things like that that aren't quite as extreme. But, um, you know, but in in general, you know, absolutely, we we need to be clear just the way you can. You can't generalize across that length of time. So many different cultures, so many different backgrounds, so many different contexts, uh, so many different uh, you know ways that people kind of grew up in the faith and lived their faith. It, it it is only it becomes meaningless to be very specific about you know particular things that they might all agree on in a in a in a certain way that you, you want to use that that sentence. But it's not impossible. Like, there are contexts in which it makes sense to use something like that. But you know something better like, like to talk about the broader patristic tradition. You know tends in a certain direction. The same way we can talk about the biblical tradition yeah. or all the That's books right. of scripture. You know which you can't say the Bible says either because what part of the Bible? Which you know so. Yeah, it, everything Professor Alcol just said. Gotcha. Well, this has been a great 45 minutes. Thank you very much. Again, if you're watching this and you'd like to see the second half, if you're a patron, well, you know what to do. And if you're not a patron, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and become a patron. And you don't only get the live stream, you also get a year's worth of weekly episodes where I ask Father Jeffrey all of my burning questions and he provides me with perfect answers every says, time the fathers say <laughs> yes <laughs> every episode begins with the fathers say um well yeah thank you very much everybody and i'm looking forward to our september live stream thank you very much dan operball and father jeffrey and we'll see everybody next time god bless everyone bye for now and we're back for our patrons welcome patrons welcome father jeffrey welcome dan operball dr daniel operball <laughs> Uh, this is Daniel G. Upperwell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused with all the other Dr. Daniel Upperwells. <laughs> no, those guys are jerks. Um, I will tell you a fun story, Dr. Opperwall. When me and Akala moved to this new place we live, we live relatively near you, which means we drive by your street, mm-hmm. you know, every, uh, every once in a while, relatively often. And every time we drive by, <laughs> we say, hi, Upperwalls. <laughs> every, every time. Every time. Um, I'm not going to give out your street address because I don't want the millions of viewers to know. Uh, oh, yeah. The paparazzi. Uh, it's, a, it's a big problem. Yeah. yeah. Is there a proper collective noun for opera walls? I think you just said it. Some the people call walls. my children the opera lings. <laughs> the opera lings? That works <laughs> yes. really well. Yeah. 
Oh. Um, Eleni's parents-in-law could be the opera-in-laws. Okay, this is not why we're here. We're here to talk about or origin of Alexandria. Okay. Um, so I, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a preface of who origin of Alexandria is. Actually, I'm going to give a little a- anecdote, and then I'm going to give a little preface, and then I'm going to turn it over to the experts, and you can kind of fix things and the, uh, fix things that I've uh, screwed up, and then we can talk a little bit about his place in church history because I think he's a very interesting case study uh, vis-a-vis church fatherhood because you know there are some that would really consider him a church father. But he's not a saint, and actually his works are condemned by an ecumenical council. Uh, and then there's others who would staunchly say, no, he's not uh, a church father because he does not actually kind of represent the sort of, I don't know, the tradition or something like that. Um, but anyways, uh, here's my little anecdote. I, in my undergrad, I was taking an intro to early Christianity course, and one of the questions on the exam was, you know, here are a list of five ancient church fathers. Um, pick two of them and write Tell me what you know about them. That, that was the question. And uh, I, one of them was origin of Alexandria. Anyways, I did my test. I go outside and there's another uh, girl who had finished the test. And we're chatting about the, the test. And she goes, yeah, that one question, I didn't know what to say. Like, I don't know what the origin of Alexandria is. <laughs> um, which is really funny. She, she mistook the beginning right. of the city of Alexandria with the person <laughs> named origin mm-hmm. who was from the city of Alexandria. Yep. Um, but so, yeah. Origen was a Christian thinker, writer, teacher. He was the head of the school, the catechetical school in Alexandria, if I'm not mistaken, in the 200s. Um, and he's considered probably one of the most prolific biblical scholars of all time, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, theologians of all time. Like He's very well known. Uh, his writings are everywhere. There's even um, kind of an icon that somebody painted of him on a raised dais teaching uh, and you see it's a crowd of canonized Orthodox saints with all their halos. And the icon is entitled Origin Teaches the Saints um, because his influence on the theology of the fathers of the church was profound. Um, but uh, he I mean, he died within the Orthodox Church, if, if I'm not mistaken. He died yeah. when he died. He was a a full member in good standing of the Orthodox Christian faith. Um, and then several hundred years later, 200 or so years later, maybe three, um, his uh, works came under question because of some of the questionable things that Dan Operwell, you alluded to in the first uh, public podcast, a uh, public live stream. Um, and there were people using his works who were called the originists and whatever it might be. And the church, uh, the church had a council where they got together, condemned the teachings and burned his writings. Obviously, not all of them because we still have some of them. Um, but there was, a, I guess, a ceremonial act of burning his writing. So I guess I'll get both of your takes. Maybe we'll start with Father Jeffrey and then go to uh, Dan Operwall. What would you, how would you characterize the place of origin amongst the church fathers? I think that icon that you were describing is perfect illustration of, of the situation, really. We wouldn't have you know, St. Athanasios, we wouldn't have the Cappadocians, we wouldn't have, I mean, we would have them, obviously, but in terms of the the kind of development of their thought and what they were able to do thoroughly within an Orthodox frame, right? So, I mean, we, you know, I think Professor Alpera said in the first half of this that, you know, you can trust 
entirely. You know, someone like St. Athanasius of Alexandria, there's not a place in his writings you go to where you say, well, not so sure about that. He's just thorough. Well, it's a little filioquist sometimes. I don't know. I'm sorry. But, it, <laughs> but is that actually a problem? I think uh, we need to expand, <laughs> expand our, our yeah. theological yeah. vocabulary. Certainly from a contemporary Orthodox perspective, maybe some of that would be problematic. But in general, I mean, the, the people that we really, really trust, we look to all the time, you know, where did they get their theological underpinnings and development and, and categories and methods, actually methods, a really big thing that comes out of uh, out of origin. Um, you know, they wouldn't be what they were without him. And so an icon that shows him on this raised day is without a halo. I think I have the these- uh, I think I have the icon here. So I'm going to try and uh, share it. But you can keep talking, sure. Father Jeffrey, yeah, as I, I mean, do that. I mean, to me, that, that's the perfect illustration, you know, of this. And and in a way, it's a kind of an encouraging thing, you know, that somehow, you know, everybody can play a part in this, you know, that there's, uh, you know, there's a place for everybody. And, you know, I, I said earlier that I think it's maybe a little bit unfair that he ended up being condemned or certainly sort of some of his writings got condemned. I mean that not because I'm thoroughly in favor of every part of, of his writings. It's not that at all. In fact, I skew you know, quite a bit away from, you know, his more, uh, you know, even, you know, Platonizing tendencies in terms of interpretation, that sort of thing. But what I think is just totally unfair is that somebody gets condemned for ideas after they're no longer around to talk about them and defend them. And I just think if somebody dies in the communion of the Orthodox Church, they should be dying with some confidence. You know, if they've repented of their sins and they're in full sacramental communion with the church, let's not dig them up again after two or 300 years and, you know, rake them over the coals. I think There's, that's um, the unfair bit. I think, you know, uh, was it uh, Wycliffe who, I mean, he's not within the Orthodox tradition, but if you looked it up in the, in the, in the, in the books, it says like date of death. It gives you a date and it says date of execution. It's like 50 years later. <laughs> could be, could be. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's on, you know, it's not very fair. It's not sporting, you know, give people a chance. Uh, it's, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, because this is something uh, I, I kind of disagree with actually in the case of origin only. Okay. okay. And the reason <laughs> is that origin is so powerful intellectually yeah. and yeah. so incredibly important. And the stuff that's foundational in origin is absolutely foundational as as Father Jeffrey just said, you you cannot you don't have orthodox trinitarian theology without origin. Um it it just isn't there. But he is from the very start um, is somebody who other authors know they have to gloss. And the reason is that because he's so foundational, he's so compelling and he's so powerful. And when he's right, he is one of the, the capstones, the capstone probably of all the rest of Orthodox Trinitarian theology. But when he's wrong, he's crazy way out there. And I mean, like way out there. It's not even like Gregory of Nyssa with, you know, um, this whole whatever universal salvation thing. Potentially problematic, even to St. Augustine, where, you know, maybe he goes a little too far against the Pelagians and you get this kind of double predestination thing, which is problematic. The, this stuff is kid stuff compared to the degree of wild 
that origin is and the potential disastrous consequences of that. So I think from the very start and by the time you get to the Fifth Ecumenical Council, where they do come out and condemn, I have I really have some sympathies for for the fathers of the council in doing that in the normal course. It's not really fair play, as Father Jeffrey says. It's not something that is done much uh, it shouldn't be, and it's not something that one goes and does for every little detail. But this is this is origin. This isn't just anybody. He is so big, <laughs> um, and and it creates just a tremendous amount of risk. And I think his legacy from the very very beginning, even from the late third century, has always reflected that. If you look at the the way the, the Cappadocians use origin, it's it's by collecting this Philokalia of origin or whatever these texts that they have knowingly cherry-picked, separated off from other things and said, okay, this is the stuff that's good. Uh, and, and here's the stuff we don't want to get into. Um, and this is, this is a very patristic way of doing things, by the way. I think they do this to Plato too. What's true is true, right? Truth is all truth is God's truth. And if they see it there in origin, then, then that's great. If they see it even in Plato, then great. Um, but, but it doesn't mean we believe everything Plato says either. Like we, we have to stay at arm's length from Plato for actually very similar reasons because origin is deeply Platonist. Um, so in the case of origin, I, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to the church coming out and saying, look, um, this, you can't be treating this guy the way you do an Athanasius or even a Gregory of Nyssa or Gregory of Nazianzus or whatever, or St. Basil. Um, he's just way more risky and really ought not to be the purview of people without a lot of expertise and knowledge and training. I would never recommend that a lay person, an Orthodox lay person, go sit down and read origin even the really good stuff even even the foundational stuff on the trinity just you know what go read athanasius instead or read the cappadocians um there you'll have it all glossed they've taken what they've they've sat at that icon they learned it from origin they they've polished it up from us they've separated off the really really dangerous stuff uh and now they're giving you the good stuff and if you're a scholar if you're an expert we need to read origin it's really good that origin is extant uh, for us for a lot of reasons but I think that that exceptional act of putting him at arm's length um, is perhaps sincerely called for for the absolutely exceptional status of of origin in specific. Yeah, I, I can live with that. I mean, that that just shows it's a it's a way of respecting him actually even more because you say you yeah. know we we need all this stuff and you're such a great talent that we just can't risk those those weird bits. Cause I mean, a lot of the church father, I mean, nothing like the kind of psychedelic stuff that, that he gets into. And you, you do kind of wonder whether he experimented with <laughs> yeah, you substances or something yes. like that. But um, fair enough. It's led to a lot of creativity, but the, but you know, it's because a similar sort of thing happens with, with others. I mean, I think of Maximus's treatment of Dionysius, the, or the, uh, the, yeah. the corpus of the Areopagite there. Mm-hmm. There's almost like a, a kind of, conscious creation of an orthodox thoroughly orthodox version of it and we'll, yes you know, the way he describes him as the greatest of the fathers and you know and, and this i'm just going to build on that but of course what he does with it is is completely you know different from the original intention which was quite neoplatonist and and so forth so it's happening in little ways here and there throughout the tradition but but maybe you're right that there is this exceptional case because he's just such a great mind that you have to actually be negative as well as being a charitable reader, you know, the way that they are with, with others. And so, um, uh, no, I, I, 
I'm, I'm persuaded, you know. But okay. uh, in fact, it was done re- relatively gently in the sense that we're still not sure whether he himself was condemned or whether it was just his works. Or it's, it's a little bit ambiguous. And maybe there was that sort of sentiment, you know, all along and that they were kind of keeping in the back of their minds that kind of icon that you, you displayed there and thinking, you know, we owe so much to him. How could we mm-hmm. possibly condemn him? And so we'll do it in this kind of, you know, you know, not so clear way so that, uh, you know, we can affect the, the sort of excision of the stuff that we don't want to see in anybody's hands without actually truly condemning the person who was so influential. What do you make of the gesture of, of burning his writings? Like, is that kind of in the, in the, I, we don't do that anymore. I think it's good, to be t- <laughs> but it's also, I don't know. It's kind of par for the course in the ancient world. I mean, mm. you know, what can you say? It's a different culture. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I doubt how widespread and, and, you know, and there was probably an act, a symbolic act or, or whatever that was, right. was done in conjunction with, with the condemnation. But I mean, the, the reality is we do have manuscripts, you know, plenty of them and, and, and the fairly widespread sources, as far as I understand. I mean, not, not perfect collection, but we don't have a perfect collection of anybody from the third century. My goodness, how Does early it, we, is We this? have a ton of origin. We have a ton of origin. It's yeah, an absolutely so, massive corpus. And this, I'm just talking what's extent now, and it was even larger. I mean, exactly. there are other, like a lot of other heretics, the... Wars is not really a heretic, but a lot of heretics, so-called, yeah. um, you get much better campaigns to actually destroy all their writings. So yeah. there, there are a lot of, um, you know, what we would call heretical authors who really, they really got scrubbed out and, and we, we don't have those texts. Yeah. So um, it, if there was ever an attempt to do that with Origin, which my guess is there just really wasn't, that it was accepted that these were, were important and useful for scholars of all ages. But um if there was such an attempt to really scrub them out, it was a, 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 an astonishingly miserable failure because we have everybody a huge went and hid them. Oh, I can't lose yes. this. Put it under my mattress. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But I think it's mainly just keeping it out of the hands of of just any old layperson. Because if you just read it and you just start imbibing that the way you might with John Cassian or something, like you're going to walk away with some some wild stuff. Sorry, there's a question though. Yeah, Cam uh, wants us to know that. He totally knows what Neoplatonism is, but could you define it for those who don't? <laughs> yeah. I'm asking for a yeah. friend. Asking for a yeah, friend. Asking for a friend. Totally. Well, I'll tell you, Cam. I'll tell your friend. Um, so, yes. Well, it's a big, big thing to try to unpack. But um, basically, where would I start? So, for Plato, there's this really fundamental question about what makes a thing a thing. What makes a certain thing itself? So, you see a dog. You see a glass of water. Uh, you see my headset. These are all differentiable. We know what a dog is. We know what this glass of water is. Uh, and that raises, if you sit back and think about it for a minute, it raises a really very difficult question about how you know that. So how, if I show this to you and I say, here's this is a glass of water, almost empty glass of water. Well, we all know that that's what that is. But how do we know what makes it a glass of water? Well, we can start picking it apart and uh, start hacking at the definition of of what makes what defines a glass of water does it yeah it's made of glass have a certain shape you know but if this were more of a bowl shape maybe it's a bowl instead of a glass how do we know when it's a glass when it's a bowl they both contain liquid if you if you get my sense so you have this problem of what makes something what it is and it's a perennial fundamental human philosophical problem one that has never been definitively solved by human beings 
So Plato's basic solution to this problem is to posit that there is this invisible world sort of beyond our own world where there is an absolutely ideal version of basically every identifiable specific thing from which everything in this world partakes and takes its takes its nature. So there's this platonic glass of water up there that is the glass of water that defines glass of water. And this glass of water is kind of partaking in the nature of that. There is the platonic dog. There's the platonic human. And we humans partake of that nature and the dog partakes of that nature. And somehow we all have this connection to that world from remembering it is kind of how Plato frames it. We remember this ideal world and that's how we can tell what is what in this world. That all may seem like really weird background, but what that raises is the question of how is that world of ideals actually connected to this world where we live? What is the nature of that psychic connection? So over the centuries after Plato, people who believed and followed um, Plato's worldview started positing more and more uh, that there was this kind of single ultimate one thing. That is the ideal of ideals, basically, from which all the ideals then partake. And then all of these little intermediate kind of things, they're characterized in very different ways by different thinkers. But all these intermediate sort of layers of existence between us way down here and that one ultimate ideal thing, God, up there, that kind of radiate out in this big, huge kind of cosmic hierarchy. And so when we say Neoplatonism, we're talking about thinkers many centuries after Plato uh, who are working with these very complex ways of framing that massive cosmic hierarchy. It's, it's often literally called the cosmic hierarchy that goes down from God to us. Uh, and Origen draws a lot from those kinds of ideas. So for him, this world of souls is uh, this pre-existent world that's kind of part of that hierarchy uh, and moves around the soul kind of fall at a certain point, all of them, but this one, the one soul is the soul of Christ. This doesn't sound very orthodox, does it? And that soul of Christ kind of comes down and saves us and brings us all back to, back to this origin source, this, this essential point up in this kind of ideals type world. Uh, and we're all going to get eventually really bored up there because nothing happens and we're all going to fall again. And this is going to happen over and over and over. So these are some aspects of origins thought that are drawn from this system of framing the universe that is itself rooted in Plato's notion of the world of ideals, which became increasingly complex philosophically. I hope that's a decent answer uh, and not just baffling. It is, frankly, it is pretty baffling and different authors have wildly different systems, uh, but that's kind of the gist of it, this complex hierarchical world um, of kind of partaking of different layers of reality and maybe moving between those layers. So I've heard some, especially in conversations with some of my Protestant friends that maybe want to emphasize that the fathers are not all, you know, saints are all hunky-dory or anything like that, or, or some want to even to emphasize the apostolic period and how good and holy and important that period is, they have to sort of, um, they have to, or I've had people basically say, well, the fathers are all just Neoplatonists and have nothing to do with biblical Christianity, right? So you can't really, following the fathers is not a really useful thing. You're, you know, you're just going to end up as a Neoplatonist or whatever they mean when, by saying that. Um, so I wanted to get your, your take on, on no. that. No. There, there are no, there are no better 
smarter and better informed critics of Neoplatonism than the vast majority of church fathers. They they were con- most of them. I mean, I'm not using the the fathers thing that we were just talking about. But uh, I know you, you look at so you look at the Cappadocian <laughs> fathers. Well, I'll try to be more specific. You look at the Cappadocian fathers, or or Saint Augustine is a good example too. They are uh, absolutely aware of these problems and consciously not Neoplatonists. They are precisely saying uh, that this isn't how it works. All of Trinitarian theology is a big fat critique of this notion of how the, how the universe is set up is to say, no, God, there's not this demiurge and all these other layers and da, 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 all the way up to this, you know, this one thing that is the thing above all things. There's, there's God and God becomes incarnate. Christ is God. This is why it's so essential that Christ is not created. If you go into Arianism, now you're in a kind of a Neoplatonist, potentially Neoplatonist territory. Or again, the problem sections of origin where Jesus appears to be this, not really God, but this other soul. Like elsewhere in origin, he, he, he's the one who frames Christ as precisely co-eternal. It's perfect Trinitarian theology. And then, but then now over here, he's talking these Platonist terms where Jesus is like this created soul, but he's the best one. That means that we haven't, we haven't actually made contact with the divine, the creator. And as an, when Athanasius says, God became man, that man might become God. This is a conscious critique of Platonism and Neoplatonism. So to say that the fathers are Neoplatonists is just, um, is just absolutely factually incorrect. They were knowingly not Neoplatonists. They were deliberately not Neoplatonists. Yeah, and the example that I gave before, you know, Dinus is the Areopagite. I mean, here's a, a figure, we don't know much about him, fifth century, somewhere in Syria or something like that. Um, and he's cribbing, you know, huge sections of Plotinus, right, in, in his writings. You know, you get, so you get straight, Neoplatonism brought in into the church. Now, what the this is a really interesting case study because, of course, you know he's writing under the name of the disciple of Saint Paul, and so almost immediately, you know, his works get accepted, you know, into the church and read. But people don't really know quite what to do with them because you know there's wholesale Neoplatonic thought just being brought in. So you get someone like Saint Maximus the Confessor who comes and who does this beautiful charitable you know, work that very similar to what, you know, the Fifth Council does with Origen, but, but in a, in a, in a beautiful way, paying great tribute to this great father who, you know, he, he never discusses it one way or the other, but could possibly have thought that this was uncovering texts from, from the middle of the first century or something. So indeed the disciple of St. Paul, but in any case, he takes him and then completely takes away all the Neoplatonism and just puts it right back into an incarnational, Trinitarian, you know, proper Orthodox framework and, and so forth. Because what you get in Dionysius in talking about, you know, all these hierarchies and so forth, you, you, know, you get this idea that, you know, things go out from the one and then kind of circle back through and then return. This is the big thing in Neoplatonism is, is this kind of move out and then back, this kind of out and then return and so forth. Well, some of those same kind of concepts and ideas are played with, you know, by St. Maximus, but he uses them completely in a different register, different character, different framework altogether. So it's a really interesting study of whenever it's detected, even when they're sort of thinking, well, this is from somebody important, you know, what are we going to do with this? They're always 
you know, critiquing the actual content of that thought, using some of the terminology, perhaps. In fact, the word hierarchy we use all the time in Northern Search was invented by this shadowy fifth century, you know, Syrian who, who writes under the name of Dionysius. He's the guy who comes up with the term hierarchy in the, in the sense that, that, that we use it. So we use that term, Neoplatonic term, but we use it in a completely different context or a different philosophical and religious framework than, than what it is, uh, you know, used in Neoplatonism. So, so yeah, it, it, to argue that the fathers are Neoplatonists would be, you know, very, very difficult indeed, because, you know, they're precisely addressing that at every stage of the way, whether it's charitably or direct action, you know, they're, they're always aware. They've got their antennae up all the time for things like this, more than, you know, than, uh, you know, most other people would. They're always on the lookout for these dangers, mm-hmm. but ultimately undermining what? Undermining salvation, not undermining some idea, not undermining some philosophical precept, undermining the very basis on which we are saved. That's why they keep talking about the gospel, they keep talking about salvation, they keep talking about what we do in response to that. And it's not the ideas, ultimately, it's it's the way the ideas shape reality and our understanding of salvation that count. Mm-hmm. So Cam uh, had a follow up here. Um, neat. This is helpful. That is helpful. I don't want to hijack this conversation. Cam, you can hijack the entire conversation if you want. Just keep throwing in questions if you want. Um, so our Aristotelian telos and Platonism, the same thing. I hear these words thrown around. No, no. Um, no, yeah. Aristotle doesn't really have the same degree of religiosity really at all as Plato. Um, Plato is a very mystical thinker, very interested in the gods, very interested in souls and what happens after we die. Um, these categories that we would understand as, you know, religious, really, even by modern standards. Um, and, and so, Platonism is sort of a type of philosophical religion, really, in the ancient world um, that uses Plato as its foundational source for understanding a lot of these religious questions that all human beings think about. You know, what happens after you die? What's how are we related to the creator or or whatever is whatever is predicate to the universe, that kind of thing. Um, The phrase telos for Aristotle. So Aristotle is a much more just kind of what we would kind of call philosophical thinker, really uh, mostly thinking about this world that we live in, how it works. Aristotle spends a lot of his time and energy on questions like physics. How does, you know, stuff move in the, in the, in the world, in the earth? Um, and, uh, politics, he spends a lot of time on. Plato's interested in politics too. Uh, and then, of course, his famous metaphysics, um, which is, comes from, Metaphysics literally means after the physics. It was all the stuff Aristotle wrote about that was published usually right after his physics. Um, so Aristotle's yeah, more recognizably a philosopher to a modern to a modern eye. The term telos is just Aristotle's way of talking about kind of the, the goal or the kind of it really just means the end. But in Aristotelian um, thinking, what that's about is um, the the sort of end or, or the or the purpose of a thing. If you want to understand uh, a thing, you need to understand its purpose. So, um, oh, I'll bring up the water cup back again. So to understand that this is a water glass, we have to understand something about its purpose, that it w- that it has a purpose of holding water so that I can drink uh, the water. And that's the kind of 
telos um, of of the water glass in the, in the physical realm. So it's not it doesn't it's not packed with all the same kind of um, religious uh, stuff that Plato's world of ideals and Neoplatonism uh, all gets into. Aristotle is also very very important for the church fathers. Also often someone they put uh, at arm's length, but the church fathers, most of them, the Greek speaking ones anyway. Um, bring in tons and tons of Aristotle's vocabulary. What Aristotle was by the time you get to the third, fourth century is someone who had really defined the philosophical terminology of the era. And so when people talk about what, you know, Christ having one nature or two natures, they're debating about Aristotle. Unfortunately, in Aristotle, the definition of that word nature or aphesis in Greek is uh, extremely vague. And that's one of the reasons <laughs> Aristotle's vagueness is one of the most important reasons that the Oriental and Eastern Orthodox Christians are not in communion today. So ponder that for a while, but you can, you can read Aristotle on what nature is and it's like, is it different from hypostasis? It's very unclear. Anyway, so Aristotle brings in a lot of the philosophical vocabulary that the fathers uh, partake from, uh, but he's much, much less problematic when it comes to these kind of mystical things because Aristotle just doesn't really dive into that stuff. He's, he's not there to speculate about what happens after we die, that kind of thing. It just doesn't interest him so much. Uh, go ahead, just Father up, Yeah, on Cam's question there, because, you know, there's a really interesting angle, um, you know, or, you know, consequence, you know, these two different ways of looking at, you know, reality if, effectively. You know, and there's that great painting, right? Um, da Vinci, isn't it? Where, you know, Plato's like this and Aristotle's, you know, like this. And it really does represent... Um, you know, where, um, you know, what, what the focus is of, of each of their, their, their thought and so forth. But because both become inherited in the Orthodox Church and right. in an Orthodox mm -hmm. praxis and so forth. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, to take, you know, what makes something perfect, right? So for, for Plato, it would be, you know, that it, it, perfectly embodies or expresses that form, that ideal, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we have that, you know, a little bit in, in our orthodox thinking around, you know, kind of what makes something good, you know, it, uh, you know, even scriptural things like be perfect because your father in heaven is perfect, that kind of thing. It, the idea that the earthly reality or that heaven and earth most come together when earth kind of mirrors or represents the heavenly realm. And of course, a lot of our liturgical, um, you know, symbolism and so forth expresses you know things like that and some of which is quite dionysian even you know the way that the angels and the hierarchies of that are are actually called into into question when we are called into play rather when we you know when we're celebrating liturgy that, that, that this is about you know let us who mystically represent the cherubim it, it is a kind of platonic way of doing liturgy and symbolizing liturgy and, and so forth but also in our tradition in uh, is the whole aristotelian tradition of you know, virtues and vices. And what a virtue is, and we, we often miss this today because we think of, you know, just simply, you know, lists of, well, good characteristics of something or bad characteristics. It's actually more directed to that telos, you know, the, that has been raised than, than, than anything else. A virtue is actually just the characteristic, the habitual characteristic of something that goes towards the end, the purpose, the telos of something. So a knife 
can be said to be virtuous if it in fact functions according to the telos of a knife. So there's a good way of being or a virtuous way of being a knife and it's being effective, being, you know, productive and that. So you could talk about, you know, virtuous guns, you know, even it doesn't mean quite what people think. It, it means that they are doing the thing that a gun is supposed to do or, or what have you. So virtues are the habits that we have that lead towards the, the proper telos. So in the patristic tradition, okay, the fathers say, we might say, you know, but certainly, and this comes you know, very directly out of, um, you know, the desert fathers and so forth, where they're really interested in practical, pragmatic, you know, the, the, the phronesis, you know, that, that practical wisdom, you know, that, that was so key to Aristotle and then picked up by St. Paul and so forth. You know, how do you live? What is the, what's the experience of living towards the goal of being a human being? Well, that's the life of virtue. And so, you know, it, in, in Dan's book about, you know, the, the Desert Fathers and St. John Cassie and everything, there's a lot in there about virtues and vices and so forth. Well, a virtue is a habit leading towards the proper end of something. So for a human being, that's participation in the life of God. It's this coming together of the, the divine and the human. It's the life of Christ, the pattern of Christ. So to be virtuous is to live according to that telos or towards that telos rather than away from it. And a vice is the opposite of a virtue. So a vice isn't like a list of, of, of things that are against the rules as such. It's simply that they are against the purpose, against the telos of the thing. So you can see how these two complementary ways of, of looking at reality, but also of, of, of purposefulness of creation, of, of goodness and, and, and evil and so forth, they can come together and we use both of them and we kind of move naturally and we've joined together, you know, Plato and Aristotle in, in this kind of way. And, and the, the reason we've done that and we still do that is because the fathers did that, right? And we could say that in a kind of general sense that some were more uh, more Platonic, some were Aristotelian, but generally, you know, everybody's drawing from these these deep wells, and they're kind of bringing these two modes of thought together in this you know kind of more pragmatic way. Would Plato or Aristotle themselves be happy with that? Probably not. This is not really using their systems the way they intended. But, you know, if we had a good conversation with it about them, there's Greek churches in, in, in Greece where you go into the narthex and you find icons of Plato and Aristotle. So can't push that argument too far. Clearly, they think they were at least one step in the right direction. But, but the use of their systems is something different from saying that's what Plato said. That's what Aristotle said. I would never say Aristotle taught a kind of moral system based on virtues and vices leading to theosis you know but that's that's what the fathers did with aristotle likewise you know plato with his forms and, and so forth um i'm going to take the conversation in a bit of a different direction but i think hopefully a very fruitful direction so i'll be very blunt with my question and then i'll get uh dan operal to respond first and father jeffrey you can uh react um from there um <clears throat> We talk a lot about the the fathers of the church and the fathers of the church and their writings and their theology have such a central place in in orthodox the orthodox mindset and and the way that orthodox christians practice their faith but how holistic can their theology really be given that the fathers of the church are almost exclusively men that are celibate um you know it, that's the question. Like, you know, that's such a small sliver of the human experience, yeah. but they have an, a disproportionate amount of influence over the mindset of, of the church. Yeah. I mean, well, you, do you, okay. Well, depends a little on what you mean by theology. I think, I think if you mean theology, 
proper, the way it's usually meant in, in Orthodox dis- discourse and among academics. Uh, personally, I don't, maybe this isn't a popular view anymore, but I don't see there would be any problem at all. Um, when you're talking about theology proper, by, so I mean like things like Trinitarian doctrines and that that kind of thing. I, I maybe I'm just old fashioned and old school, but I think the truth is the truth about that kind of thing. And you know, if it, if we've discerned it and it's well reasoned, you know, I don't I don't care if a frog proclaims the Nicene Creed um, to say nothing about you know only men or whatever. Um, so in theology proper, I don't I I don't see an issue, frankly. Um, but when it comes to the, the sort of ascetic stream, the living the Christian life stream, um, yeah, absolutely, it's an issue. Absolutely, it is. Um, it's yeah, their attitudes towards a lot of things. Um, I mean, sex is the big one, right? The easy one, where it can be hard to really hard to work with this stuff. You know, written by uh, celibate men. Um, for whom sex in some of these writings is just is just evil. It's just bad, and there's there's no getting around it. Um, and they'll kind of hold their nose and say, "Well, I guess married people because they have to have children. You know, maybe they can, you know, not look at each other and just kind of <laughs> get the job done to procreate, and and, and that's it. And that's um, that's a well, maybe that's the right answer. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Maybe those of us who aren't living that way are just doing it all wrong. But uh, it would be really nice to hear more in the tradition from married people, you know, wrangling through what it's like to have a sex life as an Orthodox Christian. I mean, I'm a married man. I have one. And there's not a lot, and especially in the ancient, in the ancient tradition, there is not a lot of help. Because it's not, it's like any other aspect of life. It's complicated and it, and it does have all kinds of ethical and moral questions that surround it. And it is a deep mystery. Um, and it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's very little help. And to, to go to, yeah, these celibates who are for each other, they're, they're giving each other tips on how to like stay away from that, right? And, and not think about that and all these things, because that's their call in life. They're celibates, right? So th- that's, that's fine. And maybe just fabulous advice for them. But here, here I am like, well, that doesn't exactly apply. So what do I do? Uh, and then, yeah, women's experience. I mean, I can't speak to that being a man myself, you know, fr- from the internal point of view. Um, but sure, absolutely. When, when you're out trying to live life and you just, it's, it's similar to, to being a married man and like it's all these celibate guys. Um, you know, there's, it would be lovely to have more, you know, more women's voices. To some degree, I, I really appreciate how much work scholars have done uh, in recent years to try to find and bring forward what we do have from the tradition uh, of the fathers and the fathers and mothers that does come from people other than, you know, celibate men, um, including women. And it's not nothing. Um, and it's really important that we get out there and be reading and be engaging with what we do have, even though unfortunately it's, it's only a little, and we can't, obviously we can't create what isn't there. Um, but yeah, it's a problem. I think on, on the, uh, when it comes to the mystery of living life, it, it, it is a problem. Um, but, uh, you know, so it goes, uh, this is, yeah, I, I'll just stop now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Father Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm broadly in agreement, you know, with that. I think one of the things that is useful to 
to take into account. And it's all part of what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, the context matters, you know. Um, there's a lot more variety than you think already. You know, um, you know, today, you know, and quite rightly, there has been a real call to kind of hear voices at the margins, you know, and, and particularly through the whole historical enterprise has, has hit, you know, until recently was a lot about the victors, you know, and uh, we weren't hearing a lot of the kind of broader perspective on events and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's really quite interesting how much variety there is in our tradition, you know, as it stands. And, you know, we don't have, you know, you might be saying, okay, there's a bunch of old white men, you know, uh, celibate men. But actually, it's more complicated than that. And there are a lot more diverse voices. There's voices from all over the world, as it was then anyway, you know, and African voices and Asian voices and and, and so forth. And so I, I think, you know, it's not the whole thing, you know, there's still a lot of things that are, are missing from that picture. But it's important to hear that and, and to be away awakened to what diversity there already, you know, is there. And yeah, I'm completely in agreement that, you know, it's a different question when it comes theology and then you know kind of practical theology or pragmatic christian life you know kind of questions as a pastor i, I am forever confronted with this i mean you know this father you every day we op open up the menean and you know there might be 25 30 saints listed there and 99 percent of them are men who are monks you know so the married voices the, the 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 voices of women and so forth are just not represented in the lives of the saints and in, in the liturgical celebrations and, and that sort of thing and you know part of it is just noticing that to begin with i think you know it would be very sad indeed if we didn't notice you know that i'm, I'm forever telling people in you know marriage preparation and things like that you know precisely what you know dr Oprah said you know there's not a lot of advice directly for you in things like the Philokalia or, you know, Desert Fathers or, or whatever. And you know why? It's because, you know, the people, the Christians who were married were too busy. They weren't idle and indigent and, you know, all this time on their hands where they could write it all down. They actually had to live the practical life. So in other words, we can turn that around and say, you know, here's the thing. It's not the easy way out. It's not the back door to the kingdom. This is actually the harder road that nobody even had time to write about it so darned hard, right? So, so in a kind of joyful, playful way, we can, you know, turn that around a little bit. Does it mean that, you know, we shouldn't work harder to find those voices? Not at all. I mean, and I think hopefully, you know, in the centuries to come, we'll hear a little bit more, you know, about that. There is a remarkable amount there already. But, you know, the, the fact is, it was men in monasteries who had the time to be writing texts and mm -hmm. saints' lives, and that all they knew about was what they was what they wrote down. So there's historical reasons for this. It's not a you know, huge conspiracy. It's not, you know, sexist you know, in the sense that, you know, a kind of 21st century person might be worried about. But it doesn't mean that we still don't attend to the need to be a little bit more, you know, pastoral in our thinking and, and make sure that, you know, people aren't feeling excluded, you know, from, from this whole thing. I mean, I certainly don't, you know, as a, as a married person, you know, I don't think of our Orthodox tradition as one that excludes me, uh, you know, and I know how to, I've been trained to kind of know how to make use of texts you know that might not be oriented in my direction but the fact is it's good that we kind of know this because you know there's not a lot of the texts that are directly related to somebody in 
you know, whatever year we're in, um, you know, today, because our situation is so, so different, whether we're married or not, whether we have children or not, whether we're, you know, male or female or whatever, we have all kinds of new things. So we need to be constantly doing that work anyway of transposing, you know, the meaning of the text to today. So maybe the church has a gift in the fact that we don't have, you know, a lot of texts from the fifth century about married people, because we'd be thinking, that's how we have to raise our kids. That doesn't seem practical. You know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I can make it up, not make it up, but I mean, I can improvise in a creative and faithful way, like we always have to, right? There's this beautiful um, thing that uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, my, one of my favorite uh, New Testament commentators and, and theologians says, you know, the, the, we, we are living in the fifth act of a play. We know the first four acts. The fifth act hasn't been written. That's what it is to be a Christian. So we have to improvise. We're doing improv theater, but we have a lot to go on. But it's getting from those first four acts to the fifth act that we're living now that is all the, the, the where all the complication is. If we think we have direct scripts to follow, then we're in dangerous territory indeed. What we need to do is realize the scripts were written for a previous act. We now need to improvise on the basis of those, but let's be faithful and creative at the same time as we do yeah. so. And the fact that it doesn't connect directly to us, that's a good thing, actually, in the end of the day. And, and just to balance it, both, both of ourselves, that, all that having been said, it's also really important not to overestimate in any way the degree of disconnect either, because so much of what's in this patristic literature, you know, on the aesthetic side or on the practical lived life side is, is just universal, truly universal to the human experience, but is probably the vast, vast, vast majority of what you're going to read in there. And then on the edges, you are going to get these issues where like, well, this is difficult. Like how much do I learn about sex from, from people who never had sex uh, or, or were later are trying to stay celibate after it. Um, you know that that's a real problem, and it's not to be to be diminished. And it's just one example. But you know, you're the vast majority of you want to know how to try to treat your your people around you with love. This is a problem that all humans have. This is something that these great um, these great authors have so much to say to everyone of every generation, male, female, married, unmarried. So we shouldn't overestimate the disconnect either. Yeah. While we should, we also must acknowledge that yeah, there is a degree to which it's there. Yeah. You mentioned earlier St. Maximus' centuries on love. You know, what a better basis of a marriage could you have than that, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, so, and that wasn't somebody who was familiar with that concept. Well, thank you both Father Jeffrey Reddy and Dr. Daniel Opperwall. And, oh, oh, Alyssa just sent in another thing. Let's read it before we're done here. Father Jeffrey, that reminds me of a book study we recently did on St. Theophan's Path to Salvation. Many struggled with some of his hard sayings in the context of our modern world. The struggle, that's where it's all at, right? You have to struggle with it. And that's good. You know, I think that is a patristic way. The fathers all liked to struggle with things, with precisely things like that. I mean, St. Maximus wrote a whole book on all the things that he struggled with, right? So, um, yeah, that, that keep up the, the work and, and keep struggling is, is the point, right? Because we can only learn through struggle. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Daniel Oberwall and Father Jeffrey Reddy. And thank you to all of our patrons. And we look forward to doing more of these in the future. Enacting the Kingdom is a patron-supported show. And if you're not a patron, you're only getting half of everything we create. If you'd like to join our growing community of supporters, please go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. Your patronage goes a long way to keeping this show going. Thanks so much.
and we'll see you next time.